Hi, I'm Grace. And I'm Adam, and welcome back to the Fly on the Wall podcast. We hope all of you are well amid the changes and stress of the past month. For those who don't know, Georgetown University has transitioned to a completely virtual learning environment. We are dedicated to releasing new and exciting content and are working hard to create a smooth transition into conducting our interviews virtually in our upcoming episodes. As for this episode, we are pulling an interview from the archives. We understand that things have changed a great deal since this following episode was recorded, but think it provides an interesting perspective into the political scene as it stood a few weeks ago. Earlier in February, we interviewed Eric Trump, a Hoya alum and the son of current President Donald Trump. He is currently a campaign surrogate for his father's re-election campaign, as well as Executive Vice President of Development and Acquisitions of the Trump Organization. But before we begin, don't forget to follow us on social media. We are at Pod on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. If you have any questions or comments, feel free to email us at flyinthewallpodcast at gmail.com. Hi, Eric. Thank you for being with us today. As someone who was an outsider and sort of knew the political process in 2016, uh, what stood out to you and surprised you most about um, being a surrogate in that campaign? Yeah, well, we certainly were outsiders. I mean, we come from a business family. I went to Georgetown, as, as you both know, as in the business school here. And, you know, immediately after school, I you know went to finance and went to real estate. And um, we were outsiders to the political process. And quite frankly, when I was in Washington, D.C., I don't think I paid nearly as much attention to the political process as maybe we all should, being students of a school that, you know, was located in Washington, D.C. Um, the political process is... Uh, it's a it's an interesting one it's one that uh, really opens your your eyes to a lot of things um, first it opens your eyes to truly how big our country is um, but also how little we truly know sitting in a major metropolitan city whether it be washington dc or whether it be new york or la relative to true america and i can tell you the sentiment felt here and the sentiment felt in new york and the sentiment felt in la and certain others that you could mention is very different than the sentiment of you know most of the people voting um, in the states. And it's one thing that I think people really get wrong and really miss. Uh, they don't understand the sentiment of this nation and the country and where voters are and how many people feel left behind by politicians. Um, you might overlook that in a Washington, D.C., but it's, um, I think it's one of the reasons that uh, we've done so well in politics. So as someone who grew up in New York and went to school in D.C., how do you connect with people from all over America when you're out on the stump? Yeah. Well, I think for us, it's, it's different. We were never politicians, and, and we're real. Uh, we speak from the heart. Um, a lot of times, my father um, specifically, but all of us, none of us are, are PC. We say what's on our mind. Uh, we're willing to fight. We didn't go memorize sound bites uh, ahead of time like all these other politicians do. Um, most of the politicians in this country are just full of, I can't say it on, on the air, but they're, they're, they're full of nonsense. And, um, you know, I, I think that's what kind of separates um, us from them. We didn't need this job. That's very different than most politicians who do need their job uh, in Washington, D.C. We weren't infatuated by, by power. Um, most people who run for political office um, are infatuated by, by power. In fact, I'd say that all of our lives are exponentially worse being somehow involved in politics um, versus you know running a really nice hotel company and real estate company in New York and doing whatever we want and not being criticized every single day. Um, but the reality is so many of our politicians are totally incompetent in terms of how they run this nation. Uh, we saw the results over several administrations. I'm not going to make this about Republicans or, or Democrats, but our country was not doing well. And now our country has never done better um, by, by every metric, by every quantifiable metric. And 
um, I'm proud of that. So I think a lot of it was being real. I think a lot of it was not being, um, you know, kind of cagey, uh, traditional politicians and doing it very differently than they all did in the past. So going along those lines, and you obviously had to really build up a campaign from the start. And so can you talk us through what that process was like and um, really what went into the behind the scenes work? Well, to say the least, we uh, we won it. I mean, we didn't know what we were doing. I remember going to the Iowa caucuses. I was telling the story to somebody before, but I went to the Iowa caucuses and I looked at one of our campaign staff members who was in the car with me on the way there and I was going to go speak at these massive caucuses and I go, guys, could you tell me what, what exactly is a caucus? And <laughs> And, uh, you know, you, you're going to go into a room and, you know, you're going to have exactly five minutes to speak and your other campaigns are going to get a chance to speak. And then people are going to vote for effectively who they like the most among all of you. And I'm sitting there saying this is very different than a process I know in New York where you walk into a library, mm-hmm. you know, you check a box and you leave. And um, I remember that day we got there and I spoke to four of the biggest gyms you've ever seen. You know, they each probably had a thousand people in them. And um, right after me was, you know, one of, you know, Ted Cruz's campaign manager or something, communications director, and a couple of candidates were also at my caucus location. And uh, I think that was our intro into into politics. And uh, we didn't have a ground team. We didn't have anybody that believed in us. So I remember getting a call one night late at night, and somebody said, um, hey, you know, there's some controversy going on. Um, you know, Megan Kelly uh, wants to have the campaign address it. You're in New York, right? And I'm like, yeah. Will you go on and talk about X, Y, and Z, whatever the subject was at the time? I go, I know nothing about that stuff. It's all right, go on there and you'll figure it out. And and that was literally probably our entire campaign. I mean, we, we did figure it out. Uh, we got very, very good at it. We built a campaign machine, the likes of which no one's ever seen. With the RNC, we built a data machine, the likes of which no one's ever seen. Um, but it was very, very organic for us. We didn't know this world. We didn't get this world. Uh, I'll give you another quick example. I mean, we were getting schooled in terms of, of delegates. We were winning on my father was winning all the states, but all of, you know, Ted Cruz was getting so many of the delegates. We didn't understand the delegate game until we got to Louisiana. And then all of a sudden, as soon as we figured it out, you know, we started calling each of them and we started playing the game. And um, it wasn't even close at that point. But, you know, sometimes in life you have to figure it out. Sometimes, you know, the consultants and the political pundits and all the people who, you know, want to make a fortune off of every campaign, they don't know the answers either. Um, and uh, using a little bit of common sense actually gives you probably an advantage over these uh, paid phony operatives. What's the hardest lesson you've learned while being on the campaign trail? <laughs> well, listen, um, you better have thick skin um, and you better be willing to to work hard. Uh, don't get offended by anything. Um, you know, keep to your convictions and, and your beliefs. Um, politics is a brutal game. You, you see it every single day on TV. If, if you study it, it's, it's, you know, it's a tough world. It's a, you know, and, and you get criticized and you will get ostracized. Um, in, in different ways, and, uh, and and you have to have a shield up, and you have to uh, you have to be able to fight, and you can't let things bother you. Um, just going on that, politics, especially in the last few years, has been seen as relatively brutal and zero sum. And many people criticized your father for sort of furthering that divisiveness. Um, how now that your father's president and not running um, the campaign anymore, how do you reach out to all citizens, not just those who are in your base? Well, listen, I think you do reach out to all citizens. Whether or not all citizens want to be reached out to is maybe a different thing, but you, you do reach out to all citizens. And the way you reach out to all citizens is you make this country better. Um, our country was, was failing under the last administration, like it or like it or not. Um, a lot of smart people at the school, a lot of smart people in the business school. Again, you could sit down with all the mathematical geniuses on this campus, and you could take every, again, quantifiable measure, and there's none that were better in the past than they are right now. We have the best economy 
uh, in the history of this country right now. Um, stock markets are at all-time highs. 401ks are up 50% since my father took office. Pension plans are, you know, plans are solvent again, whereas they weren't. Consumer confidence is the highest it's ever been. Unemployment's the lowest it's ever been. You know, our military is rebuilt. We can actually fight. I mean, before my father took office, we were running out of ammo in the military. We were borrowing <clears throat> parts from museum planes to get our fighter jets airborne. Our vets weren't being taken care of. Guys, I could go down the list. I mean, you know, the last administration gave Iran, a country that hates our guts, $150 billion, right? They took that money, they built missiles, and they just launched them at a base a couple weeks ago um, that we have over in the Middle East. You probably saw that. Um, the incompetence of past administrations, again, I'm not making this Republican or Democrat, but you have a lot of people who weren't fighting. You had China who was ripping us off. You had Mexico that was ripping us off. You had Japan, South Korea that were absolutely ripping us off. All our manufacturing was leaving this country. And you know what? It's very easy to say that those things don't exist until you start doing what I did and you know, go to Iowa and go to Pennsylvania and go to Ohio um, and go to Wisconsin and Michigan. Drive through small little towns and you see these plants that are closed. Beautiful buildings, meaning if you're a real estate guy like I am, beautiful buildings. Unfortunately, they're boarded up. They've got plywood walls, you know, meaning plywood, you know, on, on the windows, chain link fences around the parking lots, all the lights are off. The industry had left this country. And with that, it had left so much of this nation behind people with no jobs, towns that could no longer survive anymore. And um, I think the way you win people over is you fix those problems. I think that's exactly what my father did. He never ran as um, you know, the nice guy. He never ran as the perfectly politically correct guy. No, in fact, he ran as all the opposite things to that. He was almost the antithesis to that. He ran as the guy who was actually going, going to go in there, promise to do things, and overperform on the things that he promised to do. So you might have people who don't like style. That's fine. Everybody has a different style, right? I, I happen to love this style. I kind of like the aggressive style. Um, but no one can argue that he hasn't been incredibly effective at what he's done. So how did your family's background in business or your own um, actually influence the way you viewed politics in this country? Well, you know what? I, th I think it made you pessimistic uh, toward, toward toward politicians, and I think um, it made you realize how incompetent some of them truly were. I'll give you an example. Um, you know, the educational system in the, uh, in the United States was ranked 30th in the world. I mean, think about that. Ranked 30th in the world. Um, how could the educational system in this country be ranked, you know, 30th in the world? Um, you'd see these various government spending programs where, you know, they were spending, you know, $2,000 on a toilet seat for, uh, you know, some base. They were spending $1,000 on a hammer that you could go to Home Depot and buy for $3. I mean, look what my father, look how much money he saved on programs, the F-35 program, right? Um, you know, aircraft carriers just calling up and saying, you know what, you're not going to charge us that much. Guess what? You know, how about this? You know, Lockheed, if, if you're going to charge us that much, we're just not going to buy from you. We'll just go to Boeing and, and, and buy their comparable product or we'll stay with what we have, et cetera. I mean, he saved billions and billions and billions and billions of dollars. Look how much overseas foreign aid was cut off to countries who were just ripping us blind, right? I mean, look at look at NATO. America pays r roughly 4.1% of, of, of NATO's budget. And, and we have the largest economy in the world, right? So we're paying disproportionately, we're not only are we paying a higher percentage, but we're paying off of a larger, you know, economic number, right? You know, we have larger revenue in this country than others do. You have Germany who comes out, we would love to get to 1.5% by 2026. No, that's not fair. You're not going to get to 1.5% by 2026 when America's paying, you know, 4.1% now. I mean, why are we shouldering the burden of the entire world? It's the same thing with the Paris Climate Agreement, right? It's it's not that there weren't certain things that were okay in the Paris Climate Agreement. It's that the entire world 
viewed America as their piggy bank and thought it was our responsibility to pay for everything that every country should have otherwise paid for. It would have been nice if you would have had PACs say, listen, everybody's going to contribute uh, 2% of GDP toward environmental efforts. Fine. I think everybody could get behind something like that, right? But it's not what they did. It's, you know, America, you take care of all these problems. You kill all your industries. You stop doing all these other things, why China and India and all these other countries are causing far more you know, pollution than they've ever done before. In America, you're going to pay to clean up their problems, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So I think where my, my father's kind of business brass tacks came in was 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 on fairness. And, um, and he, quite frankly, and I think it also gave him a lot of backbone to stand up to these countries that no one else was ever willing to stand up to before. So this is the last question, but before you talked about sort of learning on the fly when you're on the campaign trail, um, and even now you're not, in the policy-making business, but you're still a surrogate, so you're expected to go out on the trail and defend policies that your father, um, as president, puts forth. What are your strategies for learning about, proceeding, dealing with a policy that you might not agree with or don't know much about when you, immediately after you learn it? And how do you go and you extrapolate and talk about that on the campaign trail? You know what's nice about me is I don't need to talk about any policy that I don't know anything about, right? I mean, I'm not, I'm not a government operative. Um, I run a really big company. Um, that's what I do nine to five. It's actually a lot more than nine to five, but that's what I do every single day. Um, I am a surrogate in that I'm, you know, the son of the president and I go out and I fully believe in the job that he's doing and I see the results and I can talk about common sense. If there's something very specific that's nitty gritty in terms of a specific policy that, you know, I don't need to get in those weeds. And that's nice. I, and I'm also the first person and I wish more politicians were like this. I wish more people were like this in general. I'm the first person, if I don't know the answer to a question, I'll say, I don't know. And there's no shame in, 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 in that. So um, listen, from a, from a macro perspective, um, I think just about every policy my father's put in has been phenomenally successful for this country. And, and, and again, the results speak for themselves. Cutting taxes by 20%, I mean, incredibly successful. What he's done with the labor market is incredibly successful. Guys, you know, I, I look at I look at you, probably 20, 21 years old here at Georgetown, and, and, and I sat in your same seat. 15 years ago when I came out of school I came out of I came out of Georgetown in 2006 and I mean anybody anybody could get a job and you'd go to Wall Street or you'd go anywhere you want you'd be making a lot of money um, and I had friends who were two years younger three years younger um, and they would come out of school and guys they couldn't find a job um, they couldn't find a job like it or not I had people calling me every single day hey do you know where I can find it you know blah 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 and these are the smartest kids in, 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 the, in the country that weren't meaning at this school, you know, some really intelligent people, and they couldn't find jobs. People should be celebrating the fact that we've got the greatest labor markets ever. People should be celebrating the fact that wages are going through the roof. People should be celebrating an economy that's totally on fire, um, knowing that any single person who graduates here or any other school or any other place can go into the workforce in about two seconds and find a phenomenal job because, guys, that's not always existed. And, and I think a younger generation totally takes that aspect um, for granted. And I can tell you, I had a lot of friends who graduated this school in 2008 and 2009 who struggled a lot more than a student body here will struggle during these times. And, um, and so sometimes we should be really thankful, all of us, um, thankful for what we have, the opportunities we have, where we are, where this country is, where the markets are. Um, it could be a very, very different, it could be a very, very different scenario under Bernie Sanders, under, um, you know, other people who want to tax this country at 85%, who want to shut down industry, who want to nationalize industry, who want to, um, we should be um, very, very thankful as, as, as citizens of this great country. 
The last thing before you go, one thing we like to do here at Find the Wall is called the lightning round, where we ask you a couple of quick questions and you give us a quick response. So sure. I'm going to start it off. Um, as a former Hoya, what was your fondest memory from campus? Oh, I had a lot of great memories from campus. Um, I lived right next to a tomb, so I was there just about every day. Bowie's was, was, was fantastic. I was at Bowie's just about every single day. I had a lot of great professors that I loved here. I was in the beef rat. I don't know if it still exists here. Probably got shut down, but um, it was a uh, it was a phenomenal group of guys and guys and girls actually, and uh, um, great times. What is the club you wish you had been a part of but never joined on campus? Um, none, none. I had I had enough fun on campus. I did really well as a student, but I had enough fun on campus. I have zero regrets about college. And the last one um, question we have is: Who do you think will win the Democratic nomination for president? Well, you know, it depends. Um, you know, I think I think Bernie has the momentum. Um, it really depends on how much money um, factors into an election, right? I mean, um, you have Bloomberg, um, who's got zero personality, zero charisma, um, zero energy, uh, but the guy's willing to spend $2 billion on it. Um, does that outweigh somebody who's got um, charisma and has got momentum? Um, the, the real question for America is going to be, can you buy an election? Can you buy a primary? And um I think Bernie will probably ultimately take it. Um, frankly, he deserves it. He got robbed out of the last one. I think if uh, if that happens again, I think you're going to see absolute turmoil in, in the Democratic Party. I mean, he's got rabid supporters, really loyal supporters. Similar, quite frankly, to you know, my father's supporters. He's got incredibly loyal supporters. Uh, Bernie does. And I think they are going to absolutely revolt um, if they jip him out of it um, because the DNC has, you know, a new flavor of the month. So um, probably Bernie. Well, thank you for joining us on this podcast. We appreciate it. And um, enjoy your speech here at Georgetown. Thank you. It's great to be back, guys. That's a wrap. Thanks for joining us this week. We know times have changed greatly since we first recorded this episode. and Our thoughts go out to all of the families who are going through new challenges. Stay healthy and see you next episode.